The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. Hey there, I just wanted to kick off the show with a quick note that this episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. There's never been a better time to get serious about that book idea that's been rattling around in your head. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, deadlines, and step-by-step guidance while you write so that you can actually finish your book. Your book coach will give you the customized tools and blueprints to success that are so often lacking in the traditional publishing world. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill sets needed to become great book coaches themselves. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can help other writers reach their goals. Just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles for more info and to get a free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. So I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and this book is just going to pour out of me. And instead, it was a kind of decade-long, halting, faithless process of of misery with interspersed mm. with occasional moments of such profound revelation that in retrospect, that was what it was for. In other words, the gift for me was not the release of the book. The gift for me was the miserable process of working on the book. Greetings and welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, and this week, the New York Times bestselling memoirist and journalist, Lisa Brennan-Jobs, joined me to talk about her decades-long journey to publication, why it's so important to find yourself in the pages of your own work, the meaning of memory, and the imposter syndrome that all writers face, especially the children of celebrities. Lisa's a Brooklyn-based writer whose father was the widely worshipped tech pioneer and entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, best known as the co-founder of Apple. Her first book, Small Fry, is her lauded memoir about growing up being shuffled between single parents in Silicon Valley during the 80s and 90s, always in the orbit of her celebrity dad and struggling artist mom. Small Fry was a New York Times, New Yorker, and People Magazine top 10 book of the year for 2018, 
and Best Book of the Year for the LA Times, NPR, Amazon, GQ, and Publishers Weekly. The book's been called beautiful, literary, and devastating by the New York Times Book Review, a masterly Silicon Valley Gothic by Vogue, and mesmerizing, discomforting reading by The New Yorker. At part one of this file, Lisa and I discussed what it's like to be a writer with a celebrity parent. The author's up and down 10-year writing process peppered by the occasional profound revelation, how her childhood memories return to her so vividly, why shame and emotion are so helpful to unearthing the geological layers of fact in memoir and vice versa, how she overcame writer's block, imposter syndrome, and her own doubts and fears to write a best-selling memoir, and why part of writing a memoir is about bringing into consciousness things that were previously unconscious. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And we are back on The Writer Files with an esteemed guest today. I am pleased to uh, be joined today by New York Times bestselling memoirist, journalist, Lisa Brennan Jobs. Thanks so much for taking time out of your your busy schedule and perhaps your vacation to uh, hop on here to wrap with us about your process. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I'm tempted to talk about what it's like to be on a vacation with a 16-month-old, which doesn't feel like a vacation at all. Just oh saying. Oh my. <laughs> it's lovely, but it's like a, I'm like a short order cook and uh, I don't know, but it's <laughs> and nice. Some, but. So, and some sleepless nights. Yeah, but I'm really happy to be here. It feels like a break. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you doing this. And um, I want to dig into your fantastic story and process and talk about your book, all the things. But um, let's talk a little bit about your trajectory to bestselling uh, memoirist and um, kind of how you got here. So maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with your bio, just a little a bit about how you got here. And maybe, you know, I know you've, t- you've talked about in previous interviews about how you have kind of always been a writer. And I want to kind of dig into that a little bit and, and, you know, where you found inspiration early on to, um, to kind of get here. I was just thinking, well, I was just a total loser. And then I looked like a, I was doing pretty well for a minute and now I'm a loser again. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Writing. <laughs> Writing's just really hard. And, um, I'm so happy that a lot of people have read the book, but I could see a world in which it would go the other way too. So anyway, yeah. Uh, how did I get here? I've always been a writer. It's a weird thing to be a writer and to be born into uh, one of these families. So that felt for a long time with this book like a strange, uh, uh, like a burden and an impediment. And I really did not want to write a memoir first. It just felt like a hmm. curse. Um, mm-hmm. But yet I couldn't seem to write anything else. I thought I'll write about fish or I'll write, like, what topic am I going to write about? Something, something nonfiction, because that is what I like to write. And 
but then it seemed like if I didn't, if I didn't write this story, then all the other possible future stories I wanted to write were kind of trapped behind it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, um, shame, I think, that got unearthed and exposed for its own foolishness. I mean, I'm not sure how to say that grammatically well, but (laughs) there were a lot of things I was ashamed about that until they kind of got dug up and they got laughed at or they got diminished by being exposed, nothing else was going to, was going to work out. So my, my, I was always writing. I was always reading, although I didn't actually really learn to read till I was about eight. I really couldn't read easily mm-hmm. until I was eight. My mother is dyslexic, and I think she couldn't really teach me, and we, we, I switched schools a fair amount. Um, and so I didn't really understand the, the losing oneself in a book quality until I was hmm. a bit older. But then I remember in middle school, there was one essay that kind of came pouring out, and I thought when I started this book, and then, and then in college, um, my writing was, I would, I would think a lot about something and I would sit down and it would kind of pour out and it would pour out usually well. So I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and this book is just going to pour out of me. And instead it was a kind of decade long halting, faithless process of, of misery with interspersed mm. with occasional moments of such profound revelation that in retrospect, that was what it was for. In other words, the gift for me was not the release of the book. The gift for me was the miserable process of working on the book hmm. in the beginning. And I'm so sorry, I'm talking forever. No, it's great. Um, but I'm so um, I'm so results oriented and such a pleaser. Um, and I don't say those things in a positive way um, about myself. But I remember when I first had really decided I was going to do the book, which took years to get um aligned in that way. Cause I felt so ashamed of being the kid of a celebrity writing a memoir. I mean, kill me. And when I, but anyway, I thought if somebody came at night and delivered a finished book, that was my book and it was going to come out and I was going to get praise for it and it was going to all work out and no one was ever going to know that I didn't write it. That's what I, that's, that would be my preference. And then by the time it came out, I thought, even if I don't publish this, this thing, uh, it was worth it. All the gifts for me were in the doing, but you had to really work hard to get them. And it was, it was miserable. Like so many stories, so many stories that were dispatched with so many stories that didn't end up in the book Mm -hmm. in order to get the few that did so many things I wasn't sure the worth of. And I guess in the larger sense, I just wasn't sure of the worth of myself. And so writing a memoir was tricky in the beginning. You couldn't find me on the pages. My editor said, you know, this is a good scene, but I, I can't find you on the pages. And so most of the process was kind of trying to get on the, on the pages of my own memoir. And I did that through figuring out what I was ashamed of and kind of exposing it. And then finding that instead of perishing, I, I felt in fact lighter and more alive. Hmm. Well, it certainly was effective. Um, and you know, the book is, is pretty marvelous to behold, uh, as I was explaining to you earlier, I think, you know, kind of my take on that process is just, I don't know, there's something about the heartbreaking vignettes, you know, and you say it took you a decade, right? About that, I think. Yeah. So my my question is, you know, the wisdom that, that you kind of pull 
that obviously this character, uh, (laughs) this character, you, in your autobiography really comes through as having this wisdom that's far surpassing, you know, your, your age, right? Well, I guess that's another thing is that I, I had to wait. Part of the decade problem was the tone wasn't right. The perspective wasn't right. And it wasn't right because I wasn't quite old enough to write it when I started. Mm -hmm. So it was like this strange battle of growing older and having more perspective and wisdom and then being able to write more from that place, but not having quite enough and having to a tug of war between an ability to write and an ability and, and, but not yet having the perspective or wisdom to get the book in a place that I was proud of. Hmm. So I would write, you know, some scenes would work out because the perspective was right. It wasn't until I started to explore and expose things that I wasn't so happy with about myself that the perspective got better. And I think that it took a kind of a vantage point of having, but being older and maybe being a bit wiser to Hmm. even be able to have that enough distance from my childhood self that I could say that I could expose myself and not feel too vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Or that I I could be more vulnerable and that was okay. I mean, I'm not sure how to say it, but anyway, I interrupted you to blather. Go on. Oh no, it's fine. I, I think I was trying to complete a thought myself, but, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is, uh, pretty heartbreaking and, and breathtaking at the same time, but so beautiful. Um, but you were saying something about the child seems more wise than a child is in the book or something no, but I, like that. But I think, I think that is the, I think that probably is the process of going back. And I think, you know, I, I guess one of my questions was, you know, how, how did you come back to a time, you know, in your childhood with such clarity? And, you know, I was wondering if you had kept journals or, you know, where these, these details came from. And I know you've talked about kind of, you know, that the boredom of, of the writing process and how, you know, your kind of, your memory, um, well, does come back to you, but had you kept notes or. So I was terrified after, even after I got my book contract that I wouldn't be able to remember enough stories or, you know, I guess that we call them scenes to yeah. write a book. Mm-hmm. I had written some for the contract and I remembered them vividly. Like when me and my mom go to my dad's house and take the couch but I was terrified. In fact, that was kind of all I had. Mm. And my ex-boyfriend, my boyfriend at the time was really helpful. And I'd known him since I was a kid. And he said, no, no, you'll work on it and they'll come back. And honestly, I thought, I thought that they wouldn't. I was so, I mean, it just, Hmm. I would just draw a blank. I would think of my childhood and draw a blank. But then you sit down and you, you write one story and that story seems to come out of you in more detail than you knew you contained. I mean, honestly, yeah. I would sit down and write a story and then I would go back and read over it the next day and think, oh my God, <laughs> like, as if it, my memory had sort of purged itself on the page. Mm-hmm. And, but, but then still I would think, but that's the only story I've got. And then there would be another story or I would mention to someone something like, oh, I went to Japan with my middle school and they would say, oh, did you write about that? And I would think, oh, I guess, is that worthy of writing about? I guess I'll try writing about that. Yeah. And then we moved so many times and I was able to construct a timeline based on the public events that my father had done Mm -hmm. and knowing what house we were living in at the time and speaking with my mother and piecing it together. It really took years to exactly piece together the timeline so that I finally had a list 
of the 13 houses we'd lived in before I was, <laughs> I think, seven or eight, and knew why we had moved from each place to each place. But that list took years to construct. Because then my mother would mention some. Well, I found on a on a board that someone was advertising ho- houses for women who were pregnant but thinking of adoption, and I called them even though I already had you and said I needed a place, and so and and I knew that was in Menlo Park, so I was able to piece these things together. And then, but with the layers of facts come layers of emotions. It's almost like a sort of strange excavation, mm-hmm. geological exp- excavation, because um, each layer of facts dredges up a whole. Um, trove of emotions around those facts, the houses that you lived in, you remember stories related to those houses then and the schools that you went to. And then you almost have to, at least I almost had to dig up a whole new layer of facts to then get more stories about my past. So it was, um, I I kept some journals, but like most people, you know, I started out with a lot of verve and then tapered off off quite quickly. And then I talked with my parents' ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends to jog my memory. And I, you know, as I said, I was dating someone I'd known my whole life and his parents had known my parents. And I went back and lived in Palo Alto for months and in Hmm. California for years, actually, I think, or maybe at least a year and a half. And um, so I could remember and describe the smells. You know, there there were smells in the air that I remember from my childhood but I almost had to be back in them to describe them properly. So there were things like that. And I went back to all the old houses where I had lived. Um, That's cool. But the other thing is I think that, yeah, I, I think that you, you keep things that confuse you as a child. You box mm-hmm. them up for later. You know that later they're going to make sense. But you don't know what they mean at the time. And so in this process was also occasionally there'd be a, I discover a closed box and open it. Something that had yeah. been a question to me earlier, maybe I hadn't even realized it was a question, but I'd saved it um, because it confused me. And then there were so many stories in this book. There were at least seven books, I would say, wow. for this book. So in the end, after thinking I had nothing, lots of people tell me, well, I don't remember my childhood. And I felt in some ways like I didn't. But in the end, I had so much more than I needed for a book. So I think memory is also just a matter of work, of Mm -hmm. research work and emotional work. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you kind of describe it as a constellation of stories, each one connecting to another. Yeah, I think you're right. The human brain kind of parses the things that are most important, right? And then you're right, you, you, as you get older, boxes open up and, um, and you save things that are traumatic, maybe. Maybe they're too traumatic even to save. Maybe you just get a wisp of something and then you kind of follow it. But this process is kind of miserable. And you only <laughs> really do it if you're a little desperate. It's not fun. <laughs> right. Because it feels indulgent and also miserable. <laughs> so you think, who am I? And then you, you know, you're sort of in a room with your phone locked in a weird little box for years and you're writing a memoir and your friends are like, okay, you know, well, obviously your, your dear friends aren't like that, but you think, (laughs) um, it feels like you're an imposter because you can remember things, Uh, but most of the time when you remember them, they also aren't very important. So you have to write a lot of stories to get to the ones. Yeah. I want to, I wanted to ask you about that. The the imposter syndrome piece, because I was going to ask you about this, because it's something 
we talk a lot with neuroscientists and, and writers about that kind of coming to the coming to the page and coming to this project um the uh yeah what that sent what that weight of the impact because i know that all writers deal with imposter syndrome it's just something we all come up against and if you say you don't you're probably lying but i think most people have a sense of imposter syndrome when they come to something important um so did you feel because yeah because the work isn't linear so you can spend days and days working on something that ends up to be horrible um well, I don't know if linear is the word. It's not um, necessarily important. You could spend 20 years working on a book that 10 people read. Um, yeah. Which doesn't mean it's not brilliant. So you and and you wouldn't know beforehand, or you could you could in all earnestness do your best to write something um, beautiful and find yourself being savaged by critics. Yeah. Um, so which doesn't really tie into imposter syndrome, but I guess I'm saying it does seem indulgent sure. sitting there for what, what are you sitting there for? I mean, I hope, you know, I hope that my book has moved some people and that they've, maybe they picked up the book and they thought that they were going to read about a sort of celebrity story. And instead they found parts of their own childhood, whatever their childhood was like yeah. um, in my book. And that sort of maybe in some subtle or not so subtle way was meaningful. And so that's amazing. Uh, but you can't, you don't know when you're writing that it's actually going to go out into the world um, in any sort of uh, positive way. And especially for me, um, I mean, it, for me in in the sense that, you know, I'm, I just feel felt like I kind of slipped into a genre I don't really love, which is this glossy celebrity memoir genre. It just felt like who gave me the right to, I mean, everyone, you know, the agent will give me a right and the editor will give me a right and the publisher will give me a right to publish my book. But am I actually adding any, any meaning into the world? And mm -hmm. after days and days of, of writing that you just know is not any good at all, uh, it's really hard not, not to give up. And I, I had a lot of people and I think everybody needs this, you know, I had a lot of people who believed in me and who believed in the project for me. One of my editors said, you know, it's just not very often that a, that a real writer is born into one of these families. And if I were you, I would take the time it needs. I would mm. take the time and get it right. Mm -hmm. And my ex-boyfriend who'd known me since I was a kid definitely felt that it was important. It was, it had the, it had the keys to my own freedom in it. Hmm. There was so much rushing and my parents were so young and self-centered, maybe in a, in a good way. They were alive and they were both artistic, I would say, mm -hmm. and focused on themselves. And I just hadn't had the time um, to figure out what things meant to me. And it hadn't, I hadn't been important maybe in some ways that some other kids had. And I had to take in order for the rest of my life to be more meaningful or more profound, I had to take the time to define my story for myself. And I, I'm not saying that because um, of my father's celebrity. I'm not saying I had to define it for myself against the fact that other people have defined it for me. I just mean that in a human way, mm -hmm. that I 
that I hadn't made meaning of my own story. And if, and if people don't do that for themselves, then it's really hard to, to create a story, um, to, to create one's own story in the future. If you don't figure out what the past story means, because if you don't figure out what it means, you just end up repeating and repeating it. And that's what my mother was saying. You know, you have to make sense of your own story or you repeat it. And I thought, Oh, what a cliche. But then hmm. it turned out to be true. I think there are things, part of writing a memoir is just bringing into consciousness things that before were unconscious. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily making sense of them, although bringing them into the light somehow does make sense of them. Um, but just bringing them into the light so that you can, in the future, know what they mean and then choose to repeat them or choose to change them. Uh, and before you know what they are, you don't have the choice. Um, for example, you know, when I was driving with my dad at night, I, I, well, more than driving, I really had never been alone with him before. And then on some Wednesday night, my mother had a college class and he arranged to take me and I was waiting at his office for him. And then pretty soon we're alone in his car Mm -hmm. driving to his mansion through the hills in Woodside in California. And I mean, this is like the this is like the dream of the fatherless child, right? The, when the father does arrive, he's handsome and he's charismatic and he's driving a Porsche and you're going to a (laughs) mansion, you know, but at the same time he's, he's not really talking. And so it feels like this dream, but something feels incredibly incomplete. And if I do ask him a question, he answers sort of monosyllabically and it feels like too much and not enough at the same time. And it wasn't until I wrote that out, and then maybe even a couple of years after that, that I, and after writing other stories, I realized, oh, my parents were so incredibly young. And those moments where my father didn't talk to me were often just because he was awkward, because mm-hmm. he didn't know what to say. So I was writing this book from the perspective of someone who was older than both of my parents were at the time. Right. And just that realization, which to some degree was visceral, that it wasn't personal. I think opened a lot of things up for me. It opened things up in the book, um, space to laugh at things that hadn't been funny before. And it opened things up in life likewise that are Hmm. funny rather than uh, kind of rigid and tragic, you know? Yeah. So the events didn't change, but my perspective changed on them. And that makes all the difference. Well, I'd be interested to know not only (laughs) what the original manuscript length was um oh my god so before, long <laughs> we'll get to that but um you know i think you know you, you keep coming back to this idea of memory and how it's i don't know kind of circular or, or you know whatever how, how we deal with um traumatic things or or you know these things that de- are deeply affecting but have you since the book has been published had more you know kind of catharsis or revelatory thoughts or, or, or I should say realizations about your relationship with your mom or your relationship with your dad or, you know, the ongoing, cause it keeps going. Right. And you, and you probably, you're probably jotting things down and you're like, Oh, maybe, you know, or did you get it all out? <laughs> I felt like I'd gotten it all out, but also the process of editing was so long and arduous. And also I think the sleep deprivation and the sort of radical life shift of having a baby right as the book came out Mm. meant that I just 
shifted my focus into a, into a new place. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like, oh, wait, I should have included that one scene. I haven't felt like that. There's one person that I think maybe I should have included in the acknowledgments. And maybe I, I made a mistake there. I read it over when I had, had just had my son because I realized it was the last edit I had the chance to make any changes. Mm. And for a while there, I had been just disgusted with my own writing. I mean, people had said to me I would be, but I had no idea how disgusted, how how intense that feeling was when I would have to read over edits. It was just ugh, miserable. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm, where we also humbly ask you to support the show with a secure donation to help us keep going. Just click the little yellow PayPal donate button over at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. And thank you.